Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 77. This is going to be a sermon that I believe is going to come up short because you're only going to hear half of it today. The half that you're going to hear presents the problem. The half that we will talk about the next time we're together is the solution. And I'm always wary of presenting just the problem without also presenting the solution. But I hope as you listen to this message, you will realize there is a solution. We have been preaching through a series of various psalms highlighting a concept or principle of spiritual legacy building. The fact that we want to be known years from now when our children are grown and our grandchildren are grown as the forebearers or the parents, if you will, of those who have built a spiritual legacy that honors the name and testimony of Jesus Christ. We're using the Psalms in order to bring out the heart experiences of those who struggled with the very same things you and I experience. Now, let me give you the legacy principle and then open it up in Psalm 77. I believe this psalm is pregnant with illustrating this principle. Let me give you the principle first. I want my children and my grandchildren to learn that doubt, doubt is an integral part of faith building. And that they must honestly and openly confront such doubts in a biblical way. Let me say it again because it doesn't sound right, does it? I want my children and my grandchildren to learn that doubt is an integral part of faith building. And that they must learn to confront those doubts in a biblical way, honestly and openly admitting those doubts. I know that those of you who have been with me long enough will come to realize or have come to realize that the one thing I fight in the church is clicheism and easy believism. The faith of the Christian is warfare. It is a struggle. There is nothing easy about it. When Jesus speaks of us coming to him and taking upon ourselves his yoke, his burden, he tells us that his yoke is easy. It's easy in this sense that Christ has already borne the sorrow and the pain that our sins bring with us. But the experience of the Christian life is one of cross-bearing. To pick up a cross means there will be suffering. And to bear suffering and heartache, there will also be times 
where we doubt, where the pain and the spiritual reality of that kind of doubt becomes menacing and so painful that we may wonder whether or not God even exists. I suggest to you that the psalmist is teaching us that it is healthier spiritually for us to bring those doubts out onto the table, to deal with them for what they are, to lay them before Christ on his cross, and then to begin the process of a spiritual healing that will come in the throes of his inerrant word. Now, let's make something very clear before we get into this psalm. In the 77th psalm, we have a report of a man who almost lost his faith. We do not know who wrote this psalm. It's likely not David. It may have been written during the reign of Josiah the king in the context of Habakkuk the prophet, but we don't have any proof. We cannot nail down who this person was and what caused them to experience the incredible pain that this psalm lays out for us. But we know that the psalmist who wrote this psalm nearly lost his faith. Eventually, he found his way back to an even greater faith and a greater trust in God than ever before. And in the psalm, he tells us exactly how he did that. The opening verses of the 77th Psalm record for us a man in emotional distress. The psalmist is experiencing some incredible crisis of faith, some troublesome event that brought him to the point of crying out to God with a broken heart, a grieved, anguished, depressed heart. But then that brought him to a second problem. The second problem grew out of the first problem. It came upon him when he realized that in so dealing with his God, crying out to him, pouring out his soul, languishing before God in this incredible pain, this incredible grief, this incredible sorrow, the second problem was that it appeared as though God was ignoring him. So now he has two problems. The crisis of faith that languished in his soul and the fact that God didn't seem to care. And it grieves him. He was heading as some of you are, as some of us have, toward a total loss of faith. Where do you begin your thinking concerning God? You know, theology means the study of God. Where do you begin? Historically, we evangelical Christians say, well, the place to begin is in the book. We believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God that every verse and every chapter and every word is God breathed. And we believe that. 
But at the risk of sounding heretical, I'm going to suggest to you that that is not the real place for us to start. We don't start with what God said. We need to start with what God did. And the word records for us what he did. So we must transcend an easy believism or some sort of doctrinal correctness in studying the word and return to what the word tells us God actually did. Life will never take on the dimension of depth and richness it should have if we do not give ourselves to the reading and to the understanding of not just the words of God, but the deeds of God. That is the place to start. The appeal to faith must begin with what God did. The Bible records for us what God did. So we cannot simply experience the words of Scripture. We have to go beyond that to the depth of the deeds of what God has accomplished. You know, in the New Testament, we have the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He's about to die a very horrendous and painful death by stoning. Just before he is cast into the pit, he has his last words, if you will. In that sermon preached by Stephen, which you can read about in the book of Acts, it's an incredible sermon. A classic sermon. One that every preacher can grow from and learn from. In that sermon, what Stephen does is he rehearses the deeds of God. Throughout history, he goes back and he traces for his accusers God's dealings, God's actions, God's deeds in the recorded history of this nation. In other words, on his deathbed, he cites the deeds, the actions, the movements of God. All of us experience at one time or another crises of faith. Some of you are going through incredible crises of faith right now. Some deeper than others. We have learned over the course of our own experiences that everybody's pain is relative. We can always find somebody worse off than us. We can always find somebody with more incredible pain than we have. But you know, it really doesn't matter all that much when you're going through the pain. It doesn't matter all that much when you're experiencing the crisis yourself. Somebody else's pain doesn't seem to matter. It's your pain that matters. The Bible refers to John the Baptist as the greatest of the Old Testament saints. The greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Now what made him great was that he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. The one who announced the coming of Messiah, the one who served as the forerunner, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John preached. He baptized people, called the nation to repentance. He even went as far as to confront the moral failures of the very powers to be. 
eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose and face to face. The end result of that was that he was thrown in prison. There he is literally rotting in a jail cell, about to die an incredible death by beheading. While he's sitting there, word comes to him of the preaching and teaching ministry of Jesus. It appears as though somebody came from Jesus' crowd, his disciples, to minister to John. John then raises this question. Now, this is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the very forerunner, the one who saw Jesus come, anointed him into his priesthood, and saw the heavens opened, and the voice, the Spirit of God announcing, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. John was there when all of that unpacked. He sends a message back to Jesus. You know what the message was? Ask Jesus if he is really the Messiah or should we expect someone else? That is a crisis of faith. That is a struggle of the soul. Now, Jesus' response back to him was, go back and tell John what you have seen. The deeds you have seen, and he lists them, that the blind are given their sight, the lame are being healed, the deaf are made to hear, the lepers are being healed, and even the dead are brought back to life. Go back and tell John, not what I said, but what I did that confirmed what I said. The deeds of God. Or Thomas. We love this guy, don't we? We call him what? Thomas the... Oh, how sad that we do that. Because, you know, I honestly believe that Thomas was simply conveying what everybody else there was feeling. He was expressing the same doubts that you and I are afraid to express because we're so wrapped up in clicheism and appearance. He raises the raw question of faith. Now, you'll notice when Jesus confronts Thomas, he doesn't argue with him. He doesn't say, you bad little boy, how dare you to doubt? You are now ostracized from the community of good Christians. You have now become a bad Christian. No, he doesn't do that at all. He calls Thomas to himself. He says, come, Thomas, put your hand in my side. Feel the wounds in my hands. Handle me and see. Now watch this. It is I, the same one, here it is, risen from the dead. That's what I've done. The deeds of God. Not merely the words, but the deeds. And this is why I believe, parenthetically, why these historic facts of the Christian faith are so continually under attack. 
This is the point where unbelief always makes its thrust. They seek to destroy the credibility of the deeds of God in history. God worked a virgin birth. That's under attack. Jesus was raised from the dead. That's under attack. Jesus was ascended into heaven. That's under attack. Jesus is coming again. That's under attack. The parting of the Red Sea. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. The healing of the blind man. The cleansing of the lepers. And on and on we go. We look at the various deeds of God. The miracles of scripture. And they are continually and ruthlessly under attack. Why? If we can dissuade people concerning the deeds of God, then the word of God becomes nothing more than a novel, a fictional novel of no value to you. That is why many of us experience crises of faith. For you see, as long as our faith is resting upon subjective feelings within, we will always be unsure and we will always be uncertain. I don't know about you, but I'm a very emotional person. We all have emotions to one degree or some are more emotional than others. The one thing I'm absolutely sure of, if my faith is going to rest in how I feel, I'm going to believe today and be an atheist tomorrow. My feelings are going to go up and down like a yo-yo. Subjective feeling is not the cure. We have to go much deeper than that. Because you see, we have all learned that our feelings are very unreliable. Take the great facts of the New Testament as Paul summarizes the great facts of the New Testament. He is about to appear before the, the, the governor. He's about to appear for his very life to give his story. He's about to go on trial. And you'll notice what he says in Acts 26, 26. He says, the king is familiar with these things. These things being the events of the New Testament. And I can speak freely to him. I am convinced, Paul says, that none of this has escaped notice. Listen closely now. None of this has escaped notice because it was not done in a corner. He didn't hide it. He didn't merely appear to one or two people. He appeared to women who were accused by the closest of Jesus' disciples of being on hallucinogens. But then he appeared again to groups of two, to five, several times to 11. On one occasion, he appeared to over 500 at once. They all saw him. They saw him risen. They saw the resurrected body. They bore witness to the fact these are the deeds of God. It was not hidden in a corner. It was broadcast for all to see. Furthermore, the deeds of God are timeless. They are contemporary. Once having occurred, these facts remain in human history. The results remain and you can trace back through the course of centuries 
And you can confirm that these things actually happened. How different is the Bible, for example, than the Book of Mormon? How different from the cult books, the so-called scriptures of the various cults? I mean, when you consider that the Book of Mormon claims to be a book of history, it claims to be a record of historical evidence of some sort of pre-American race that once lived on these continents. But every archaeological excavation that has ever been done in the Americas denies flatly the claims of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon speaks of wars that were fought with metal weapons of brass and iron and steel, but you will not find one of these employed as weapons in any of the wars in the Americas during that time frame. In other words, the historical facts do not bear out the claims of the book. But it seems as though every day we're finding out something more from some dig somewhere, from some scroll that's been unearthed, from some uh, civilization whose tokens of their existence bear ample testimony to the fact that what the Bible says happened, happened. We don't even need, and I'm putting the word need in quotes there, the scriptures to affirm the facts of the history the Bible records. So you and I, as we stand here today, we put our anchors down in something very critical. The deeds of God. Everywhere you look is a denial. Everywhere you look, there is an attack. Everywhere you look, there is some scholar from some school claiming to have knowledge of something that he does not have knowledge of, telling you that the events of Scripture are not true when all of the historical, archaeological, and surrounding data confirms and verifies the very things you and I believe actually happened. Well, having said that, I want to return to our man in Psalm 77. Because, listen to me, frankly, he's having a difficulty believing any of this. He is struggling with an intense spiritual depression. Look at verse 1. I want to define for you the character of doubt. The character of doubt. Verse 1. Doubt is a prayer that ends in soul weeping. Verse 1, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. Do you notice what his prayer is? His prayer at this point is not even specific. He doesn't say what he's praying about. The heart of verse 1 is a prayer that says, God, I am begging you to hear me. I need you to hear me. I just want you to listen. And I want to know you're listening. He is laboring to sense that the cry of his soul is even being heard. Verse 2, he cannot be consoled. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. 
at night, I stretched out untiring hands and my soul refused to be comforted. Nothing works. Doctrine doesn't cut it. He can read the catechism from now until he's blue in the face. It makes no sense to his soul. The faithful brothers and sisters who walk up to him and pat him on the back and say, brother, just believe everything's going to be fine. Or brother, I'm praying for you, falls on deaf ears. It's almost as though his spirit says, yeah, right. Worship. That's what it means when it talks about his arms being outstretched. Here is a man laying on his face before God, prostrate before the Lord, crying out to God to hear him, to know that God is even listening. He's worshiping. And the words do not go any further than his lips. It's like it's blocked right here. Have you ever been there? There is an intense, almost mocking of worship. It's like the worship itself becomes a mocker. I remember very vividly in my own family the various pain, heartache, and struggles we've gone through. I remember sitting here and listening to you sing hymns. Hymns like, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Almost anxious to turn around and scream at you. And scream at myself and say, yeah, sure you do. But when God takes from you, the very things at one time you praised him for as rich blessings from his hand, the hymns, the worship, the preaching seems to mock. I can't tell you how many times I have stood up here in this pulpit in the pit of my own personal despair and crisis of faith Preaching what I know to be the truth, but not feeling it myself. Hearing in my ear the mockery of the evil one saying to me, yeah, right. Sure you do. And begging God even while I'm preaching, Lord, bind the evil one so that you will be glorified. Help my people to hear only what's true and stop their ears from anything that's false because it's a war. Worship didn't cut it. The soul of this man refuses to be comforted. It is not that his soul doesn't want to be comforted, but there's a spiritual disconnect. The best way I can describe that for you is something that we went through a little while ago when Sharon was having a struggle physically breathing. 
she would quickly get winded. I mean, one day on the golf course, we, I saw her come off the, the putting surface, and I looked at her, and I said, you, you need to go home. You look really bad. We need to get out of here. She could barely breathe, and after considerable tests, we found out that the various chambers, the main two chambers of the heart, have to beat in connection with one another, the in and out beating of the heart. And between those chambers, there is an electrical current that has to be conducted. And in some people, for some reason, the electrical current doesn't happen. And so the heart struggles to act and to respond to the other chamber. And they had to put a pacemaker in her to get her to the point where many of you have done this, you've gone through this, where your heart just simply isn't connecting. And in a very small way, that is a picture of something that goes much deeper than a physical heart disconnect. There is something much more serious, much more grave, much more painful. It is the disconnect of the soul, where the soul is no longer beating in communion with the God who fashioned it. There's a disconnect. You know something's wrong. You're spiritually not breathing anymore. And you're weak. This man's soul is in agony because for all intents and purposes, his faith is non-existent. The cliches aren't working. The hymns aren't working. The, the, the words of scripture seem to be mocking him. The word appears to be returning unto God void. Have you ever been there? I can assure you of two things. One, that this happens regularly to God's people. And two, if you're not going through it now, one day you will. And you're going to be glad you heard this message. That's why the psalmist told us this story. That's why God chose Psalm 77. He didn't hide this man in some sort of spiritual throne where we can just throw him out there and say, well, it's wonderful to be like that psalmist. No, he puts him up there for all of us to see. And he says to us, I know what he says and the ache of his heart you are going to walk through. You want to know why? Because Christ walked through that same ache. The Bible says that in the garden, the night that he was betrayed, his soul was heavy unto death. So intense was the doubt and the suffering and the heartache and the darkness that he began to sweat. Great drops of blood, the Bible says. The emotion was so incredible, he was breaking blood vessels in his head. You know what he was doing? Crying out to his father. And do you know, as we hear him pray that prayer, there is absolutely nothing in terms of a response that comes back from his father. Silence. A silence that was so deafening that it actually culminated the cross when Jesus said, why 
have you turned your back on me? That's pain. Notice verse 3. His mind is now so cluttered and so enmeshed in heartache and pain that it's full of groaning. Verse 3, I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused, which means he dug even deeper, trying to get below the surface, trying to figure this thing out. And he grew faint. He says to us this, even though I remembered God, it didn't help. It didn't help. It brought me no comfort. My grief continued. Now listen to me. There are two occasions when one might feel this sense of emptiness. One is if there is sin in your life and result in guilt and you sense that God is angry with you. Or two, when one recalls how faithful God has been in the past and how rich his blessings have been and you still feel that he's angry with you. God seems virtually, at this point, unintelligible. They got lost in profound meditation, but nothing is left to this man but a despondent sigh. Well, it gets worse. He even gets to the point in verse 4 where he can't any longer articulate in words what he's feeling. You ever been there? What's wrong? I don't know. Well, what do you need to do? I don't know. What's going? I don't know. How can I? I don't know. You get to the point as verse four says, you kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. You see here, the grief is so profound. This man is stunned into silence where he does not even know how to pray. The sleeplessness of the night gives way to the deep depression of the morning where he walks through his life and can no longer articulate what he's going through or explain it and get some help. I can honestly tell you, I've been there. And some of you have been there. And it's not a pretty place to be. It's a place where all of what you've ever believed is put on the table. Where you are now face to face, not with mere words, but with the essence of the cry of the soul that needs intensely needs a spiritual pacemaker because the disconnect is obscene. Well, he goes to verse 5 and tells us, I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. Here is a man longing for what was. He yearned for the days when life was simpler. You know, as a young man, and I'm sure Sharon can tell you as a young woman in ministry for all these many years, there were many times 
when I did not even factor into my decision-making or into the pressing problems of my life anything like fear or faithlessness or distrust. There was very little fear. Very little distrust. Early on, I never had to question the loyalty of people. I was somewhat naive in believing and trusting that somehow or another, it didn't really matter what God sent my way, I could handle it. We lived in gangland in Philadelphia. And I never worried about walking the streets. Never worried about whether or not I was going to get attacked. I was too stupid to know any different. The pain of distrust was non-existent. Finances didn't matter because we didn't have any money. So it really didn't matter all that much. We were naive enough to believe that God said in his word he would make provision and that God was going to make provision. We didn't worry about finances. We saw miracle after miracle after miracle that God worked and performed, and it's almost as though we got to the point of expecting it. Children were a blessing not to be worried about. We didn't concern ourselves with whether or not they would be killed in a car crash or whether they would develop some horrible disease or whether they would walk away from the Lord one day. I'm not to say we weren't concerned about those things, but we didn't worry. We weren't stressed over it. We were at that point untouched by betrayal, untouched by death, untouched by disappointment, untouched by intense sorrow, but with maturity and with experience, the eyelids slowly grew heavy as we saw the hand of God majestically moving in a direction we did not want to go. I refer to these events in my life, and I hope you can in yours, as scorch marks. Some 13 of them now, scorch marks in my life, our life together. Some of them very positive, wonderful, encouraging things. Some of them very painful. But you know what I learned along the way? When life was simpler, scorch mark number one over here, the invasion takes place. Then we have scorch mark number two, where we look back at scorch mark number one. And we say that scorch mark number one was a piece of cake compared to this. And then we go out here to scorch mark number three and we look back at number one and we say that was easy. And scorch mark two, that was easy compared to what I'm going through now. And then you get all the way out here when life isn't simple anymore. And you look back at all those scorch marks in the current disconnect in the current struggle or crisis of faith, you look back and you say, you know what? All of that was Disney World. Because all along the way, God has been scorching, God has been invading, God has been marking, God has been causing you to grow. The psalmist comes to that point where he says, I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. The result of this is what? A practical deism. 
Deism is a term that I use up here quite often, and I think it's a term all of you need to understand. I'm not going to give you the highly technical definition for it. I'm just going to give you a simple layman's definition. There is a God, the deist says, but he's detached. He's there. He created it all. It's like he completed the puzzle, and he threw the puzzle down, and now he's walked away. Que sarah, sarah, this God says. Whatever's going to happen, happens. Let it go. Let the universe just continue to click and talk. Let the universe continue to move. Let your life continue to move. I will be detached to believe in a God that knows the hairs of your head, knows the days of your life, is contrary to the belief system of a deist. The sad part is, Many of us sitting here right now are listening by radio or watching this on TV are deists. A practical deism. In fact, the psalmist was infected by a practical deism. Look at verse 6. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused. My spirit inquired. Will the Lord reject forever? That means he felt rejected by God. Will he never show his favor again? The blessings are over. Has his unfailing love failed? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? You see, he recalled other times in his life when the lights seemed to go out and how God taught him to sing at what he thought was midnight. But those other times proved not to be midnight, but merely the evening. The sorrow he now had to bear was infinitely more intense And those pains and disconnect and heartache led him to believe as a practical deist that God had abandoned him. Now he is not only in an emotional crisis, he is now drowning in a theological crisis. What he feels concerning God's dealings with him do not square with what he has been taught and what he has taught and what he has embraced concerning the character and the nature of God. Is that where you are this morning? Are you close? You remain faithful to Christ for any period of time. I guarantee you, you will be there. At some stature, some point, some crisis in your life, it won't make sense anymore. And you're brought to the point of crying out before God and experiencing nothing but mere darkness. I can tell you during some of those dark periods, all the lights in the house can be on and you'll feel like you're sitting in midnight. You can be surrounded by hundreds of people, faithful people, faithful people to you, faithful people to God, people who are mature in their understanding of of who Christ is and what he did in their lives. You can be surrounded by all those people 
and none of it's contagious. None of it rubs off. You almost stare through a set of spiritual cataract eyes. Nothing's clear. And you say, God, have you abandoned me? I've been there. It's not a pretty place to be. When I decided to preach on this psalm, I read this scripture to my wife. And I got through about four verses before I broke down. Because I said, that's me. Well, now we know the problem. This is the cause of doubt. What's the cure? Remember what I said. I want my children and my grandchildren to learn that doubt is an integral part of faith building and that those doubts must be confronted and dealt with in a biblical way. If the psalmist left us there, it would be a tough place to live, wouldn't it? Like the Hebrew Christians. You read about them in Hebrews 10, before the great hall of faith of Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 10, you know what's going on in these people's lives? They wanted to quit. They wanted to go back to what was. They wanted to be in life where it was simpler, easier, where the tests of faith were not as crucial and earth-shaking. They wanted to quit. They wanted to give up. And the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is to encourage them to go on, to not miss a beat, to deal with their doubt, to look at the hall of faith. The men and women of that hall of faith were men and women who struggled in the same way you and I do. And in many cases, more so than you and I have to. And they're there. They're God's messengers to show us not who they were, but what he did in their lives. So that we won't quit. We won't give up. But there's something even greater that the psalmist discovers that brings him to the point where he comes out of this disconnect. I want you to notice as you study this this week, how the psalm seems to end without an ending. It's like the psalmist, you're turning the page. Well, what's next? And he's done. He's done. He comes to the end. He tells you how he emerged out of this darkness. And you want to go on and find out, well, so what? And there is no so what. You want to know why? Because I believe the spirit of the living God wrote it that way for a reason. So that every single one of us who are going through this darkness or one day will go through this darkness will be able to see that the story isn't finished. It's not the end. There's another chapter. There's other things to say. There's other things that will happen. God will not leave you in that despair.
This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust Him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.